Let's spend some time now in God's Word. I encourage you to turn with me to Psalm 32. We are spending the remainder of our summer in the Psalms. And in particular today, we are going to focus on Psalm 32. And Psalm 32 is one of the seven penitential psalms, or to put it in language that might be a little more familiar for us, one of the seven psalms that lead us practically toward repentance. Psalm 32, I think, is incredibly important for us because, as I said to you a couple of weeks ago, as we explored Psalm 27, that the Psalms give us a voice. The Psalms are given to God's people to help them in the various seasons of life, seasons where we need to praise, seasons where we need to express things like thanksgiving, seasons where we are sorrowful and need to lament, seasons in which we find ourselves perhaps a bit far from God and need to know how to repent. Now, I'm going to hedge a little bit on what I just said because though there are seasons where we might find ourselves far from God, truly in a sense, we need to learn to practice repentance every day. For in one way or another, most of us sin every day. In fact, most of us sin a number of times every day. Now, I suspect that no one here recently has committed grand larceny. I frankly don't even know what that means, but it sounds like a really kind, uh, a bad kind of theft. Let's go with that. Uh, probably no one recently has Uh, committed manslaughter. Probably no one here recently has been convicted of insider trading, you know, things that would make the news. Like, we haven't done those things recently. If you have, please let us know ahead of time so we don't find out from the news. But most of us have done a lot of smaller things, but they are no less offensive. We have been angry with those we love. Spouses, children, grandchildren, friends. We have gossiped. We have slandered. We have kept score against those who have wronged us. We have had impure thoughts. We have been greedy. We have coveted. We have been unrighteously afraid. We have questioned the goodness and mercy and wisdom of God. And for these and many more things, things which sometimes show up externally and sometimes are only between us and God, only He knows, we sin against Him. One of the important signs of growing as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a son or daughter of God, is that we learn to practice rhythms of repentance. Now, certainly daily, perhaps in the morning or before you retire to bed in the evening, but truly even more regularly than that, that in a sense, 
we have constant communion with God, asking Him to help us in all the tasks of life, and an awareness that often in word and thought and deed, we transgress His laws, we break His will, we choose to make ourselves king or queen, and rather than lingering in those sins and experiencing some measure of disunion with Him that we moment by moment sometimes are practicing repentance, knowing full well that those of us who are in Jesus Christ need not fear condemnation, but are so displeased, so discomforted by any sort of severance in our relationship with Him that we seek to come to Him quickly in repentance, expecting that He will keep all of His promises to forgive us. So, we are going to look today at Psalm 32, one of the seven psalms of repentance. And I believe that through this psalm, we will be reminded that there is great comfort in forgiveness. I want us, as we come to this psalm, to not just intellectually grasp it, and not even merely to see that it is a good thing, a virtuous thing, to keep short accounts with God, but perhaps more than anything to notice that this psalm points us toward the beauty of the grace of God, that though He is holy, And though He is transcendent, and though He is Creator, He relates to us as a gracious Redeemer, a merciful Father. And through the comfort of repeated forgiveness, we can find beauty in relationship with Him. This psalm will lead us to the hope, the hope that seems elusive and, and beyond us and that we may never reach, the hope that we can be fully known and fully loved. Some of you, I hope, I hope, have the kinds of relationships, perhaps with a spouse or with a a grown child or a parent or a close friend where, where a person knows everything about you. You are able to be incredibly, almost ruthlessly honest with such a person. And yet, Though they will challenge you and exhort you to continued holiness yourself, to pursuing God and obedience with all of your heart, yet they will love you anyway. Now, this is rhetorical, so please don't raise your hands. Don't nod your heads. Don't blink. Don't, don't do any Morse code. But how many of you have relationships like that? How many of you have even one person in your life 
that you can be ruthlessly honest with about all the darkest recesses of your mind and heart. And yet they love you anyway. The truth of the matter is, we all long for relationships like that. And the fundamental question is why? Why do we long for such relationships where we can be fully known and fully loved? Why? Because we were created in the image of God in intimate relationship with Him. And there is this inkling, this notion, this instinct inside of us that we can be fully known even by the Creator and fully loved But it's more than just an instinct. It's more than just an inkling. It has been proven to us through the gospel. That the God that we owe our very lives to, the God that we have offended through all of our sins, untold numbers of sins, has sent His Son to die. Not because He sinned, but because we have. And then He chooses to relate to us through pure, utter grace. That is astounding. And as we come to Psalm 32 today, I want to help us to see the gospel today and the comfort of forgiveness. Let's read together Psalm 32. A mascal of David. This probably means something like an instruction, a counsel of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. May God bless us and instruct us by the reading of His Word. Verses 1 and 2 today, I think, proclaim to us, reveal to us, this simple but profound truth. And that is that there is unique, profound comfort in being forgiven. There is unique, profound comfort in being forgiven. We recognize as we read the Scriptures, as we deal with 
conscience, this inside sort of immaterial thing about us along the way, that we have done really, really bad things, which call for justice. The cross, all at once, is God's means of displaying to us both His justice, His justifiable wrath against sin, and at the same time, in harmony, His deep grace and love for lost people. If you would like to, I would invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 4. So this is in our New Testaments, right after the Gospels and Acts. Romans chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, the Apostle Paul takes up Psalm 32 and uses it in his argument, in his explanation, in his revelation of how people are justified, how they are made right with God, how they are acquitted from their sins. In Romans chapter 4, verse 7, the apostle Paul quotes David from Psalm 32 and says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, what is the context of what Paul is saying here? The context is that people are not justified. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul, though in dark mood, but with clarity, reveals to us that all of humanity is under sin. Jews and Gentiles alike, recipients of special revelation, the Bible, and those who were not recipients of special revelation, all are under sin. And we deserve condemnation. We deserve the wrath of God. It's clear from chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, that no one is seeking for God. This notion that we meet God halfway and and we sort of agree that we're going to come back into relationship is completely and patently unbiblical. God pursues sinners. The question is, by what means? How can a holy God relate to unholy people? Is it through the law? Eventually, will will people morally reform to the point that they will obey all of God's laws? Chapter 3, verse 21 famously says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law. And how is righteousness granted to us? Not just used as a measuring stick to judge us, but actually infused within us, granted to us, so that we can actually be declared righteous? Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all have believed. For there is no distinction, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Jesus bore God's wrath. That's what it means to be a propitiation. Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. Why? Verse 25, to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Unless you think this is some novel invention... Paul says in Romans chapter 4, it's always been this way, and he uses, Roman, he uses Abraham as a case study. And that's why he says in Romans 4, 7, and 8, that blessed are those who are forgiven. 
So how is it that sinners can be right with God? How is it that we can pass from condemnation, a legal sentence, to the complete opposite sentence legally, to acquittal? How is that? It's because of Jesus Christ. He bore God's wrath in our place, and so therefore the cross is a place where God both judges sin and offers Himself to us in full reconciliation. And so, Psalm 32 proclaims to us that there is unique, profound comfort in being forgiven. And we know because of how Paul takes up this reference in Romans chapter 4, this has nothing to do with us buying God off. It has nothing to do with any sort of inherent goodness in us. It has everything to do with the top-down, unexpected, sheer, loving grace of God. And that, my friends, is why the gospel is such good news. It's unique It's profound, and through the gospel of Jesus, we can be uniquely and profoundly forgiven. Verses 1 and 2 proclaim to us this unique and profound comfort, and verses 3 through 5 of Psalm 32 teach us this difficult but incredibly important lesson. Hiding from sin brings misery, but repentance leads to restoration of relationship. Hiding from sin brings misery, but repentance leads to restoration of relationship. You'll notice in verse 3 that when David kept silent, in other words, when he was unwilling to repent, when he tried to hide from God, his bones wasted away. There were, there were physiological effects perhaps on him, or at least metaphorically he suffered. He groaned all the day long. He was not in a harmonious, peaceful relationship with God. In verse 4, God made it that way because God will not allow us to be happy or at peace if we are far from Him. And it led to the point for David that his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Perfectly applicable right now, right? Remember when I was a kid... Our favorite thing to do whenever we were like 13 through 17 was to play basketball as much as we could. And so we lived sort of like in the semi-country. We had big yards and big uh, driveways, and our neighbor, three or four houses up, had a basketball hoop. And so we would go out there, and you know, we were, we were in decent shape back in those days, so we'd take our shirts off um, because we, you know, we thought we were tough. These days, you don't do that as an adult usually, right? But we did back then. And we turned on uh, uh, heavy hair metal music on, on our boombox. For those of you who don't know what that is, these were the good old days where you had like an actual stereo and you didn't stream music. You had to use cassette tapes, sort of like the dark ages, right? And so I won't tell you the names of those bands because some of you will judge me severely, but it's, it's back. It's covered, right? It's, it's back in the day. So we would listen to, to that music. And, um, and we would just play, like, all afternoon long. It didn't matter how hot it was. And then when we were done, we would chug Mountain Dew. <laughs> and when you're 16 and you're shirtless in the summer sun and you're listening, to, I can't tell you the names of the bands, when you're listening to them and you're drinking Mountain Dew, you just think it's incredibly glorious. But you're parched 
And that Mountain Dew just tastes super, super good. And you're working out so much, and you're 16, your metabolism's so high, you don't gain weight. And, and you just sit there with your buddies, and you're sweating, and you think, oh, it's so good to have my, my thirst slaked, to, to have it be taken away by this glorious citrus beverage. Those of you who've been outside working the past couple of days on your lawns, you know what it's like to have your body dried up by the heat of summer. David experienced the misery of being far from God. When he hid from God, he was miserable. But when he repented, he was restored. And he found joy once again. When I was around that same age, my greatest sin was not listening to bad music. I had a lot of other really bad sins. And I remember that phase of my life from about 12 to 16, somewhere in there, where I lived a very hidden life. I was a pastor's kid, so at at church, whenever I was with the church family, I knew how to say all the right things and do all the right things. But whenever I was with my, my friends and I was away from the spotlight, I was a much different person. I won't go through all the things to celebrate them because they were wicked and evil and I'm ashamed of them. But I remember very distinctly what it was like back in the day, so I'm going to show you not only that I was old because of cassettes, but because of telephone technology. We actually had one telephone, right, with a big long cord. It sat in the family room, and it was super loud. Like when it rang, it woke the dead. And I remember every time that corded telephone rang, and this is not a lie, this is not hyperbole, I remember every time that phone rang for about three or four years of my life, I was afraid that I was going to get exposed. I was afraid that my sins would find me out and that some adult, maybe a school administrator or a family from church or a parent or one of my friends was going to call my parents and rat me out. That was a miserable way to live. I remember when my life changed. I'm not quite sure if it was actually when I was converted to faith in Jesus or if it was just a mature point in my life where I was done chasing idols, and I was ready to find my satisfaction in Christ. I was about 16. It's the summer of 92, somewhere back in there. Um, I, I changed. The Spirit changed me from the inside out. And I remember, not only did I, at that point, finally have a peaceful relationship with God, I had a peaceful relationship with everybody around me, including my parents. I no longer feared when the phone rang. There was profound misery before that period, and there was almost unspeakable joy and restoration that came from living an open and transparent life. David knew what it was like to pass from running from God and instead running to God. So the question is, why do we put up with it? If you are here today and you're hiding, and inevitably somebody is, Maybe you say all the right things, maybe you go all the right places, maybe you serve on the right committees and so forth, but inside you know you're miserable. But perhaps you've been keeping up the game so long you don't think you can actually admit it. Don't live in misery any longer, my friend. The Lord is gracious to forgive and He will do so readily, and so will we. I warn you that if you remain on this path, that misery will be your lot in life. 
You will know full well what it means to live in shame. You will grow exhausted from constantly posturing, putting your best foot forward. You will be marked by complaining, comparing, gossiping, eventually bitterness, hiding, isolation, and you will eventually end up all alone, even if you are surrounded by people. That is no way to live. And Jesus offers you the gospel of freedom to bring you back to himself and to restore all of your relationships. We won't take time to turn here, but I want to give you a couple of passages that you could use as a bit of a corollary study this week. Josh led us earlier in the reading from John chapter 13 where Jesus teaches that if you have already been cleansed by him, if you've already placed your faith in him and received his righteousness, yet we still sin, all of us do, and so we need to learn to practice daily repentance and he will freely forgive. Also, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, we taught through 1 John recently as a church, specifically verses 8 and 9, that John declares to us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will always receive his own. One more, Psalm 51. This is one of the other penitential psalms, one of the other psalms of repentance, perhaps the most famous one. Specifically, the superscription above it declares to us that this was David's psalm of repentance when he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Like, that's worse than gossiping and slandering, right? Like, this was a big one. It could have ruined his family and ruined the kingdom, and in some ways it did. That's a big one, and yet David finally, after a year of running from God, repents and receives once again the restoration of relationship with God. I encourage you to do some further thinking through those passages. So there is unique, profound comfort in being forgiven. There is always misery that comes from hiding from from sin, but there is great joy in the restoration of of coming back to God. And then in verses 6 through 9, the Lord assures, protects, and transforms the humble with His faithful love. In other words, we don't have to stay there. We don't have to keep going back to the things that we used to do. We don't don't have to stay in this immature, miserable state. We can change. Therefore, David says in verse 6, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. A great contrast from when Paul, or from rather when David was hiding from God. He was miserable. Now he finds security in relationship with God. Here, verses 6 and 7, he's fully known and fully loved. Enveloped in the gracious embrace of God. And then verses 8 and 9, God says through David's pen, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. God takes the repentant sinner, restores joy to them, and then transforms them. And my friends, that's why we come together on Sundays, if for nothing else, is to to come to the Word of God, and like a light, it exposes who we are, 
And then because of the hope of the free grace of the gospel given to us by Jesus, we come to him in repentance and we change. Degree by degree by degree. I am not what I want to be. Are you? I'm not. But I'm not who I was by God's grace. And for that I am thankful. And I love that phrase in verse 8. Literally in Hebrew it goes like this. On you my eye. The God of eternity sees all seven and a half billion of us, and in particular, His covenant people that He has redeemed by the blood of Jesus, His eye is on us. Not in displeasure, not in judgment, but in gracious love and affection. And then He transforms us, which not only glorifies Him because then we live for Him, but it makes us the happiest. When you live in conformity to the law of God, He will not be a killjoy. He will not take away all your pleasure. He offers you peace and pleasure that you cannot fathom. Money and fame and sex and attainment and all the wealth of the world cannot equal it. And so God in His great mercy, because He loves us so much and seeks to give us joy, will teach us and transform us for His glory and for our joy. This is what Paul is saying in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This means that every time that you hear the word preached, whether it's a great sermon or a bad one, and you can judge that as you will, or a small group, or when you come to a Bible study, or when you read the Word on your own, that there's something there for you. Not merely to intrigue you intellectually, but actually to change you from the inside out. And that's why God has given us the gift of His Word to reveal Himself to us and to transform us. Lastly today in verses 10 and 11, I say to you again what we said to you in verses 1 through 2. There is unique, profound comfort and being forgiven. Many are the sorrows, Psalm 32.10, of the wicked, but by contrast, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Unbreakable covenant love. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. There should be such intrigue Such, such unique and profound wonder that God would relate to us through His Son, not based upon any merits of our own, overlooking our faults, drawing us back into reconciled relationship with Him that we can really do nothing but shout. Some of us are so stoic in the way that we look at the world and the way that we perhaps even worship corporately that such a thing seems almost obscene to us. But have you ever been forgiven an almost incalculable debt where you've really, really messed up? Like a, a really bad one. Where the person that you have failed, the person you have sinned against, had every right to sever that relationship. 
And yet, because they believe in the gospel, the good news of forgiveness found in Jesus Christ, they have released you from that debt, and rather than running away from you, they have run to you. You ever felt that? There's nothing, nothing that feels like that. And that's the gospel. That we who have sinned innumerable times and deserve severance from God and severance from one another can actually have reconciled, healthy, peaceful, two-way relationships, fully known, fully loved. That's what the gospel proclaims to us. So I say to you very practically, we should offer that to each other. We experience it from God vertically. We should offer it to each other. Which is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So, so one of the practical implications of living in a harmonious, profound, surprising, upside-down relationship with the Creator who doesn't relate to us on the basis of our sins but on the righteousness of Jesus, which we did not earn and should not be allowed to have access to, if we've experienced that kind of vertical grace, we should extend it toward other people. Again, another passage we won't take time to turn to, but it's a great one for your consideration is Matthew 18, where Jesus talks about the parable of the unforgiving servant, the one who had been forgiven an incalculable debt, but then would not forgive one who owed him quite a great sum, but nowhere near what he had owed his master. Jesus makes it very clear that if we understand the amazing forgiveness of God, we will extend it to other people. So I say to you one last time today, hiding from sin will never make you happy. It's a lie. Sin will never bring you lasting pleasure. It's a lie. But regular patterns of repentance will lead to restoration of relationship. And the Lord will assure, protect, and transform His own. And so I say to you, my brothers and sisters, there is unique, profound comfort in being forgiven and being fully known and fully loved. So as we sometimes say around here, we want this to be a place, we want this to be a family where the gospel is proclaimed repeatedly over and over and over again in creative ways, where it's safe to fail and repent. And with the gift of time, we can all grow in relationship. Our elders want to model that for you. Our elders should be the chief repenters in this church, and we will purpose to be. Dads who lead homes husbands of wives, fathers of children, you should be the chief repenters in your home so that in our church family and in our nuclear families, we are marked with the atmosphere of grace 
where we take the gospel seriously, where we repent knowing that we'll be safe, and with the gift of time, we can all change and grow. I want to be part of that. Do you? May God do that in our church. May he do that in our families. And the aura, the atmosphere of such grace, of these patterns of repentance and the reception of a restored and gracious relationship with God will be attractive. It will draw others in who desperately need it. So may we turn to God with honest hearts and lifted up eyes, knowing that he will always forgive and restore us by his grace. May we extend that to all those around us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now take your word by your spirit and plant it deep in us. May we understand it. May we believe it. And may we embrace it. And may we model it. Do not allow us to give in to the lies of the evil one that somehow we can make ourselves clean enough for you to accept us. Or we need to live some sort of postured, fake lifestyle where others think the best of us. Lord, take that away. Replace it with, with the conviction and the hope, this profound, unique hope that before you and with one another, we can be fully known and fully loved. Do this, Lord Jesus, for the glory of our God and for the good of untold many. Amen.